Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I'm your host, Jeff Yan. In this episode, you will hear part one of my conversation with Celeste Kong, professor and the chair of general dentistry at Boston University Henry M. Goldman School of Dental Medicine. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of Digication Scholars Conversations can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Welcome to Digication Scholars Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Yan. My guest today is Celeste Kong, professor and the chair of general dentistry at the Boston University Henry M. Goldman School of Dental Medicine. Welcome, Celeste. Hello, Jeff. Well, it is um, a great honor to have you here on Digication Scholars Conversations. And also because uh, this is, um, as you had mentioned to me before, this is your 40th year at Boston at University. At Boston University, yes. 40 years at Boston University. That's amazing. And, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's been an amazing time and I'm, I've had a wonderful career here. It's great. And uh, as a professor and chair of general dent- dentistry, um, do you want to tell us just a little bit about, you know, sort of your journey at, at BU? And um, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, sure. it's pretty amazing. Well, um, I came here to do my prosthodontic program in the early 80s, and um, I was a foreign dental graduate, originally from the Philippines. I'd left the Philippines when I was very young, but um, and then uh, I had relatives here in Boston we used to visit all the time, and I would say to my parents, I really want to go to school in Boston. And uh, when it came to graduate school, they let me come. And I've never left. So uh, Boston University hired me out of my program. And uh, I was teaching part-time. I eventually practiced also part-time with my husband, who's also a prosthodontist. Um, He retired a few years ago, and now it's my turn to retire. So uh, it's, it's been good. I've been chair of the department now for about seven years. And uh, prior to that, I was the director of restorative dentistry for about 15 years. So um, I've had a lot of time uh, affecting some change and, um, you know, in terms of curriculum and, and assessments for my students. And it's been really wonderful. You, you are so so modest, and uh, I I I know that uh, you are um, not only uh, highly respected by your colleagues, but also by your students as well. And congratulations on the retirement. Yes, I hope you, thank you get to go and uh, enjoy and do things. Uh, was, you know, now that your husband's also retired too. Yes, and, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I am. We're looking forward to it. You know. Uh, COVID definitely uh, put a, a damper on some of the trips that we had planned earlier, but um, I think we're coming back to whatever our new normal is. That's right. And, That's right. Uh, you know, I, I think we'll all get used to this. Um, we all, all the dental schools had to shift gears uh, when many schools had to close for at least a brief period of time and then you know, had to figure out how yeah. to manage a school with 
not the maximum number of students in attendance. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, you know, if this is if this had happened maybe even ten years ago, we wouldn't have Zoom. We wouldn't have been able to do classes uh, remotely as easily as we eventually did. So uh, definitely, we now had the tools and they've even been enhanced, right? Yeah, yeah. To make um, learning from anywhere possible. Uh, You're right. You're right. There, It would have been, you know, if the same, you know, disease had just come in probably even just a few years ago. I mean, we had Skype, I guess, but it was not good enough. Yeah, Skype would not have been good enough. I even had trouble using it just for, um, you know, four people to get on. Yeah, with like a family, you know, sometimes, and even that is, yeah. So I think it was almost just, you know, it was just in time. And imagine if we didn't have that, the experience would have been been horrible. You know, I, I will say, um, CODA, I, you probably heard yes. this story, but CODA tried to tell the dental schools that they had to keep the seniors for an extra six months. And we go, there's no way to keep class an extra six months <laughs> when the other people are in the, in the schedule, you know? Yeah, right. There isn't a, a physical way to do it. There isn't a, right. probably a financial way to do it. There isn't a... Yeah, it, it, it's Correct. a no-go, yeah. So, you know, whatever we could do to modify um, and all the things we needed to do for simulation as well. Yeah, that, I mean, there is so much, you know, that you have to do that are obviously very hands-on. There's no substitute for it. Um, Correct, there's no uh, substitute um, for in-person patient care. Um, and certainly we could do some things simulation, but it, in the end, the students were able to come back. We opened fully within probably, hmm, I want to say within five months. Um, I think we were lucky. A lot of schools didn't do that. Well, BU did a, like, a, a, a really, really good job managing through this COVID situation. And I yeah. I spoke with a lot of schools throughout and and obviously having a um, robust medical school and a school of public health on campus provides you with a yeah. resources. Uh, some resources that other schools may not have, you know? Yeah. And I, I feel like that BU was easily one of the very first schools who were able to and willing to and efficiently able to 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 basically do massive testing on a regular basis yes i'm sure you heard that um every week for everybody i mean that's a tremendous undertaking we're a huge institution and and that was before when that was you know the norm well well, sort of became the norm but not even really for everyone but but you were i feel like that you were doing that starting in like september of 2020 oh Um, uh, yeah we were doing it uh pretty early Uh, it was actually surprising how it was really early yeah really really quickly yeah because again we had the equipment they shifted gears to change the equipment for its use yeah you know and uh 
And I remember school announced you you spent a lot of money on on it, and but it was a, I guess, a necessary step. And yeah, for us, it was necessary to keep everyone safe and to keep, you know, not just the students and the patients, but everybody. So I think Boston University did a really excellent job um, keeping people safe. Uh, It's actually funny. Today is the last day that um, anyone who is asymptomatic can be tested. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you are symptomatic, you can continue to be tested mm-hmm. um, at one location. Mm-hmm. But we had five locations where people could be, te- no, four locations where people could be tested yeah. um, on university medical and um, Charles River campus. Yeah, it's um it's it's tremendous what you were able to pull off. I, I remember talking to, you know, um, various other folks and and they were telling me what you were, you know, all trying to do. And I'm going, well, I guess that uh, if anyone can pull it off, you know, <laughs> you guys would would be able to. Yeah. Um, so so um, congratulations on doing that, managing that through throughout. Um, I I wanted to sort of go back to where what you were saying in sort of the 80s you were mm-hmm. a student from the philippines yes um in a in a medical school what is what was that like i mean were yes. you were there were there many other um international students were there many other women in the program so that's what some surprised me the most about arriving here um i went to the university of the philippines and um, my mother was also a dentist from that university. Um, and her classmates were predominantly female, as was mine. Um, we had, I think we had eight males in my class, and that was the largest group of males for a while. So coming to the United States, where in the PROS program, there were 10 of us, and I was the only female, I'm like, Um, you know, this is different. Yeah. Um, I didn't expect it. Um, but I remember, uh, in those days, you know, in those days, I remember people weren't perhaps quite as PC Mm -hmm. and, uh, my director, my clinic director usually gave me the more, shall I say, difficult patients to manage. Oh, really? Because he felt I had more patience. (laughs) And um, and he introduced me to this guy who who had a pretty good uh, title here at the university, and uh, he became a dear friend of mine afterwards. But I remember the first day I met him, uh, my clinic director says, um, "Doctor Celeste Kong is going to take care of your needs, and you know you'll be fine." And he looked at me and he says, "You're assigning me to a woman," <laughs> and I think my my facial expression was just that. Yeah. Oh, he doesn't want to be assigned to a woman. And then he he laughed and he said, ah, I'm just kidding. It's fine. You know. Um, but yeah, there weren't that many women at the dental school in the 80s. Uh, but now we're more than 50%. We're uh, the majority of the DMD class. So it's a, it's a huge change. Yeah, lots have changed. And, and I'm sure that you have seen a lot of that now. You had mentioned to me before that, I mean, it's 40 years, which 
and you had said that there are multiple generations of students. Oh, yeah. Right? So what in does fact, that mean? That means the student, your initial students had graduated, had children, had children and they had they, come and graduated. And, correct. It's, it's uh, in fact, I hired one of my, um, my, one of my relatively junior faculty members. He's been with me now, I want to say, three years, maybe four. His parents were my students as well, both of his parents. <laughs> wow. So, um, you know, it's like all in the family. And, uh, and that's not an unusual story. I, one of my older colleagues said pretty soon he'll be seeing the grandchildren. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, what are the, let me ask you this then. I mean, it must be, first of all, just the, it must be heartwarming to to have that oh, yeah, experience. Sure. Absolutely. Just, I mean, and of course, for parents to then have, you know, send, send or their have influence their children to, you know, come back to this is, speaks to, you know, the school itself, sure. right? Absolutely. Otherwise, they wouldn't recommend it. Um, right. But it must be also amazing to see like you said, you know, the number of women versus, you know, then and now. Um, the changes. All kinds of changes that must have happened. Tons, tons of different changes. Yeah. I was just talking to another colleague who is also retiring. And I said, remember pre-PowerPoint when we were using slides and we'd have to make our own slides and process our own slides and, um, and uh, the person I was speaking to is also – um, a master's of fine arts. So she used to make car 3D cardboard visual aids in order to show <laughs> jaw movement, you know? Oh, wow. And I'm like, okay, you know, nowadays we have all of these um, uh, videos for students to see jaw movement, but not in those days, you know? So it's really a different environment for the students to learn, and it's a different environment for faculty members to process educational materials. Yeah. I was saying goodbye to some of our IT guys today, um, one of whom started here with us more than 20 years ago. Wow. And I said, you trained me to use Microsoft Office. He says, you know, I think we learned PowerPoint together. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it, it's huge changes, right? Yeah, that's so, awesome. technology and um, the people who are coming in and taking dentistry, I mean, definitely. I think I want to say we're almost 60% women compared mm -hmm. to the guys this year. Um, and that seems to be a trend even in college, right? So there are less men entering college than there is uh, women. Uh, and so I think it's just a reflection of what the population is showing in terms of going to graduate school and to college. Mm -hmm. well, so let me ask you uh, something that I, I sometimes find that people romanticize about the good old days, <laughs> right? And I do yeah. sometimes myself too. Um, I was trained as an architect and, you know, my version of the good old days is that people sketch with their pencils and charcoal and, you yes. know, get their hands really dirty and building things. And, and of course now it's, you know, 
people build 3D simulations of everything, right. um, which is at a much higher fidelity and resolution than we'd oh. ever be able to draw with a pencil. Oh, yeah. But, Having, but there yeah. are some parts of that pencil that, that was tactile, that, that makes you think a certain different way. Are there things like that in dentistry or in your field that you feel like, wow, you know what, the way that we used to do certain things is, you know, that well, you miss? I think that you're going to meet old timers such as myself who are going to say, um, we had to learn everything the hard way in terms of making our own 3D models, mm. like you say, tactile. Mm. So you had to use different parts of your brain to do that mm -hmm. um, because you had to feel things, you had to visualize things in 3D and then reproduce them with your hands. That's a very different learning skill than having a 3D representation on the screen that you're manipulating. It's not the same skill. And in the end, you're still supposed to do something in your patient's mouth that produces that tooth or produces that provisional restoration. Mm -hmm. But I, if I, all I, you, you know? I absolutely get that. And actually, this is so, so interesting. Um, See, when I was thinking about, you know, like my version of using a pencil or a piece of charcoal or chalk or whatever, um, sure, the, the materials, there's a certain sort of grittiness and, you know, style to it. But it's not that. It's that you have to understand certain things in a way that has gives you a different perspective than if you were just to go to the material library and pick brick and then beautiful bricks appeared. Um, mm -hmm. But when you have to actually like put things together and see that there's mortars between the brick and like, how does the brick turn a corner and how do you make an arch? And you kind of, Oh, you know, suddenly you, you start to use different parts of your brain to do those things. And I do think that there's a certain amount of sort of understanding mm -hmm. um, that, I think it, you are really correct. Like this is why I like talking to you because you're an educator and you're immediately thinking about the the metacognition sort of implication, which is no, you think about these things differently. So yes. because you've touched the jaw and it only moves this way, you know you couldn't move it in this other angle, and therefore if we have to reach over there, there's only one way to do it, mm -hmm. right? And it's harder to get that in. It, it sort of embedded in your thinking if right. you've only seen it in a video, right? So, you know, for example, um, I'm trying to think of the word. Some of the simulators, not not necessarily all the ones we own, we, ha we have regular simulation with actual heads, uh, mannequins and jaws and things like that. But there are some simulators that rely on haptic technology, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So supposedly you can feel resistance. And, yeah, yeah. But then I said, but then you're looking at a screen and there's nothing in front of you other than this handpiece that is connected to a device that gives you <laughs> haptic feeling. Right. And I'm like, that's never going to happen in practice. You know, there's right. always you, going you, you're to you're be looking a head. At what you're, you're touching, right? Right. <laughs> it's a you're, little strange. And yeah. it's very strange. And, and I know that, 
surgeons are using this kind of training mm -hmm. to do uh, laparoscopic surgeries yeah. um, because they are inside a cavity and therefore cannot see. But inside the mouth, you can see the mouth. Right. So yeah. uh, when you're using uh, an instrument that can cut and you are inside a person's mouth, you have to be able to feel what's all around them, you know, yep. so that you don't hurt anything else. Right. But I think um, I remember. So I will say, number one, in terms of BU, we have bought all of the technology. All the possible technology the possible available. Toys. We got it. Right. <laughs> we, we, we got all the toys. Yep. And I mean, we, we just went through a very expensive addition renovation where we added all of the digital technology in the clinic and in our simulation learning center. So our students have access to all the 3D stuff mm -hmm. that they could ever want. Yeah. Um, and I remember when we first introduced it, mm, was maybe nearly 10 years ago, I remember my students saying, oh, now we can just mill the temporaries, Dr. Kong. We don't actually have to make them ourselves. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. You're still going to make them yourselves. If we mill anything, we'll be milling final restorations uh, because you still need to learn how to make that tooth, that mm -hmm. temporary on your own. Because mm -hmm. I don't think every one of you is going to buy this equipment when you leave us. Yeah. And if you don't have it, and you didn't learn how to do this, yeah. you wouldn't be able to see your patient. Mm -hmm. You know, so so they're still learning traditional ways of doing yeah. things in addition to all the digital things that yeah. they're learning. You know, I found this to be so interesting. I was talking to someone who's um, a, um, a great professor in engineering, in mechanical engineering, and, and he said that to me that... Um, it, this is it, it's fascinating because the pendulum sort of is swinging around the other way. Um, that it used to be that students that came to the the came to mechanical engineering program, they would have been spending the whole um, teenage years putting together cars in the driveways and and you know building their own whatever yeah. mechanical pieces that scratch their itches, you know. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they are usually coming in really sort of like, I've built this, I've done that, you know, yes. really sort of I, I, I launch a rocket, you know, that kind of thing, you know, <laughs> yeah. really sort of like hands-on accomplished, but doesn't know the, 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 you know, don't really know deeply why this happens and, oh. and, and how does it, you know, how, like, why do we design things a certain way? But then they come to the program and they sort of learn that. And then over time, though, he said that um, students don't come with those anymore. Um, much, much less people will come in with more video games, right? More they've done, they've 3D done, they've done stuff. a lot of like 3D stuff and they might also come in just sort of, actually they've, they've gone and have taken engineering classes. So they know some of the principles coming in, but yet they then, some of the students will go through the entire undergraduate program and sometimes graduate program having never built a, let's call it just a machine um, mm -hmm. because they didn't have to. Um, mm -hmm. Or if they built it, it's more like a little extension or they just yeah. never put in the hours, you mm -hmm. know, like getting yeah. literally the 
the elbow, you know, rolling the sleeves up and getting greasy and yes. and, yes. and like yeah. really just sort of be like, hmm, I can't lift this. What am I, how am I going to do this? You know? Um, and interestingly, at some point of that sort of um, program, the it's it, it went from mechanical engineer, but if you came with too much like hands-on experience, you are supposed to go to the vocational part of being a mechanic hmm. and you shouldn't be an engineer. And there was some like really strange sort of, I mean, I guess it's not strange. It's just, that's what happened. Um, yeah. they, they started to sort of create these diff different, different paths. And now actually a lot of the engineering programs are craving back into the, no, we got to get you to build something, get you to, mm -hmm. to probably robots. <laughs> right. But now exactly. They're building robots. And I, I know that there's one program that I thought was amazing. They had students build, um, a uh, what do you call these? Um, uh, a flying machine. Oh, so you, really? You know, you basically really light machines, and you you are using human power to cycle, and mm -hmm. and that powers something that can fly. Um, mm -hmm. It's very it's a notoriously difficult thing to do, and but like they have students do, but like that gives them the opportunity to do things that are hands on, you know, yes. um, and and it still combines a lot of the the theories and everything back together. But my point really being is, you know, like using the technology by itself, sometimes you know you can sort of forget and. And I actually, I mean, we talked a lot about this and we didn't even get back onto some of the things that I definitely wanted to ask you about, which is your, I think you and I met. I Quite a say, while ago. <laughs> yeah, it was years ago now. But Quite a while a, ago. I think you were just stepping into. I was a into, director. You were, you, were was, in the, you, were, you were director. You weren't, be, you weren't the chair yet. I wasn't chair yet. So this must have been eight years ago. Nine mm, years ago, yeah, probably. Like I would probably say, yeah, nine yeah. years or so ago. Now, BU at the time had already been using portfolios, oh, yes. has a yes. lot of successful, you know, yes. implementations. But what drew you to think about portfolios for your students? Now, as you said, you have the resource, you you have all the toys. Um, what drew you to think about using portfolios with your students? So. I had already started asking students when I was a director for a store of dentistry to put together case cases and they would do it on paper or they would do it on PowerPoint after paper um, where they would uh, get me the models, show me the models of their patients and, and explain to me what they had done so that I could see a before and after and um, that transitioned from the actual casts and models on and paper to the PowerPoint presentation. And then from the PowerPoint presentation, I said, you know, if they started building these portfolios or these cases in a different medium where they could take it with them and they could show multiple versions of whatever it is they had accomplished, then they would have something to take to a prospective employer or a program director if they were uh, planning to go to a postdoc program. So really what I wanted our students to do was to shine, to make themselves shine in a way that was um, more mobile because carrying 
casts and models of patients right, to an tough, interview, yeah. mm-hmm. that's tough. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's much better if you can do it digitally. Um, and the initial ones were definitely PowerPoint and they're still on PowerPoint, but maybe now uploaded to Digication. Um, but that was the, that was my premise. You know, I wanted our students to show work mm-hmm. so that they could shine. And, and then as I learned more about e-portfolios, I think I met you once at an e-portfolio conference that was held on Charles River campus. Um, and the person who organized it is, um, someone who has done another podcast from you. Uh, and we met people from Australia and people from England who had different kinds of, um, medium to, to do electronic portfolios. Mm-hmm. And I realized, you know, I, I went through the British system of high school where everything was handwritten in longhand. Um, (laughs) There was no such thing as a multiple guess exam. It was always an essay exam and you learned how to write for hours and hours. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and I could see that the Brits and the Australians still had a lot of that going on. Our, I don't want to call it a problem, but, our system is such that many of our students will not have had an essay exam in years, you know, uh, or have a piece of written uh, reflection other than if they had a required essay to write or a required paper to write. Um, and what I learned from attending some of these conferences uh, with you as well is that if students reflected on the things that they were accomplishing, uh, you could also assess other skills. So you could, uh, you know, dental school, our Commission on Dental Accreditation requires that they know how to communicate, mm. that they have critical thinking skills. And, you know, when way back in the 80s and 90s, they didn't talk about critical thinking skills and evidence-based dentistry. They talked about mostly the psychomotor skills. Mm-hmm. They talked about having to pass psychomotor skill exams. Now we're talking about other things um, and learning how to assess those other skills um, was not always an easy turnaround for many faculty members or for the students for that matter. And I actually had difficulty selling this concept to some of my colleagues because they said, I'd have to read all of that. When am I going to have time to read all of that? When are the students going to have time to upload all of that? I'm like, you will be surprised. I believe you will be surprised by what they submit to you. And so, of course, as the director for uh, restorative dentistry, I could manage what I was doing for my students and my colleagues. But as a chair, I had more clout, shall I say, (laughs) to be able to ask other faculty members Mm -hmm. to use different uh, tools Mm -hmm. to assess critical thinking and communication skills. And in fact, 
um, when we went through our last accreditation, we said, you know, these are some of the things that we do. We have them reflect and we have them post them on their e-portfolios. And, and um, I think that went really well. Um, in fact, one of our students was asked during our last accreditation to show them what she had online. And she showed them a case um, and, and, and something that she had posted on her uh, e-portfolio, which is, of course, the Digication platform. And then they asked her how else she would see whether she had reached competency. And we have other uh, digital platforms where they can look at grades and how they've progressed. So she could pull that up and show that to them as well. So um, I will say that one of my one of my favorite so-called newer projects was the one where I asked our faculty members who who go to the Isabella Gardner Museum uh, to ask our students to reflect upon what they learned in terms of visual thinking strategies. Have you ever heard oh, wow. of visual thinking strategies? No, no, no. Let, tell me more. It's, it's actually, it's actually how art meets um, critical thinking, and art meets um, how a person assesses what they see. Mm. So it's also, you know, art. There's no wrong answer about how a person feels about a piece of art because it it affects different people differently, you know, and um, I gave a screenshot, for example, about the visual thinking strategies at ISG, which is Isabella Gardner. And what the students do is they go there and they break out into small groups with a consultant who knows how to make them think about what they're seeing. Mm the consultant will say this look at this piece of art and tell me not what you see but tell me what you think is happening in this piece of art so that's a very que different question than what do you see because you can talk about colors perhaps or you can talk about how, how many people there are in a painting but when you ask them what do you think's happening in this picture or in this um a statue. Mm -hmm. um, they start having to look at it a little bit differently and like, well, what happened to make this picture what it is? Um, you could say, well, we think the woman lying on this bed, she doesn't look well. And then the person will say, well, what makes you say that? You know, and a person might say, well, her complexion, the people sitting next to her don't look happy. Um, you know, so they start thinking about what might be happening. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to develop observation skills. Mm -hmm. And so me some medical schools have used this visual thinking strategies. Um, and I think we did this, I want to say about 15 years ago, we started saying, let's take our students. It's a fun outing. Let's take them out to the museum and we'll have the consultants go through this visual thinking strategy exercise and make them realize that they have skills that they haven't really used. And then they have to verbally explain, communicate to their peers what it is they see. And they might see different things on the same painting. And the thing that 
I think is really kind of cool is that it is a fun outing. There are no wrong answers because art is such that, like I said earlier, you can feel anything about a piece of art. There's no wrong answer. So there's nothing to intimidate a student by saying, I don't want to participate because I might say something wrong. And um, a few years ago, I said to the faculty members who are doing this module, let's call it, they only go there once. All 200 students will go there at different times and in different groups. I said, so what do you do to assess the success of this program? Uh, well, the usual student evaluations. Like, ah, okay, you ask them two or three questions about whether they liked it or not, but it's also multiple choice, right. you know, on a, on a grid of one to five. How, how did you feel? You know, I said, but why don't you ask them to reflect on the experience of how they have to communicate and how they have to make observations? And the faculty looked at me like, oh, uh, yeah, that's a good idea. And then we'll have to read them. I go, yes. And then you have to create a rubric. <laughs> you have to create a rubric in order to judge how well they did this submission, you know, and, and Isabella Gardner, it didn't happen right away. They weren't sure about allowing students to take photographs. Mm. So the first couple of years, the students weren't allowed to take photographs. So they just had written um, reflections. But in the, in the recent years, Isabella Gardner said, you know what? It's fine. They can take pictures of whatever they want. So students now post pieces of art or pictures of the uh, Gardner Museum and talk about some of the pieces that they were asked to observe. And actually the faculty members said, wow, you know, some of these students really, really got it. Um, and when they talk about how people of different backgrounds will see different things, that brings into question the diversity of our student population, right? Mm. That, uh, that shows us that not everybody, you know, a lot of older pieces of art are Christian in nature. But if you're not Christian, you might not really get what's happening in that. Right. Um, the context would be completely lost without. Absolutely the, lost. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's just another photograph or another painting. But, um, I think. You know, it, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting um, exercise because different students will, will see very different things. This concludes part one of our conversation. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. The Digication Scholars Conversation series is brought to you by Digication a technology platform powering the most innovative e-portfolio programs in K-12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for tuning in.